Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. I'm eating a popsicle and my name is Mika. (laughs) This is a music history podcast where we're talking about the whole story of American music. And this week we're talking about the British invasion. So not American music. It is, yeah. The British had to invade somewhere. Okay. (laughs) It's the story of American music this week as told by British people. Well, we're not British. Are you going so. to have an accent the whole time? <laughs> no please, one wants that. Please. I want it. No. Not the whole time. Just like a I little bit. I can't even do one. Try. No. Try. I, I've embarrassed myself enough on well, this podcast. Well, then you try. I think you should. No. That one of us has to hold out. No. You <laughs> need to do it. I've embarrassed myself. You need to try <laughs> a, a British no. accent. No. I think I'd. Do it. I tried something earlier. I don't remember what. Not around me. Yeah, it was. It was in an earlier episode. Anyway. No, try it. Follow us on social media. Try it. Even though we don't do anything on there. But that's the best way to like get in contact with us so you can let us know what we should do differently, what we're doing bad. I think that you are doing a bad job of having fun (laughs) with the people that listen to this podcast. Okay, noted. And then we can choose whether or not we... Take in or reject your criticism, and I choose to reject that criticism. Do the accent, <laughs> damn it! Our Twitter is twitter.com slash soundofhistory underscore. Like an underscore at the end. That's probably the one we check the most often. Then we have a Facebook, but not, we don't do anything on well, there, Facebook, so just no. kind of ignore that one. Leave us reviews and stuff. Rate us on iTunes and Spotify, if they allow you to, I don't even know. I bet we'd get higher ratings if you did an accent. I disagree. Okay. The people just want to be silly. All of that's out of the way. Before we get into the music history, Mika is the host now. Mika is the host now. Um, popsicles. You know? So good. <laughs> okay. Outshine popsicles? The best. I don't need to tell you that. Everyone knows. Tuesday? I think so. Okay. I had never heard of them until you randomly bought them. Really? Oh, so good. Real I mean, fruit. I don't regularly keep up with the popsicle market. So. Real fruit. <laughs> These are no sugar added, but they're still very yummy. That means I can eat my sugar in other ways. <laughs> like in my coffee. Anything else or just popsicles? Popsicles, man. Okay, is Mika no longer the host now? Is that it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Mika's no longer the host. So now we're getting into music history, the part that everyone actually wants in this show. Excuse <laughs> you. <laughs> wow, no love. So for the past few weeks, we've talked about, I guess past few months probably at this point, we've talked about the Rat Pack. But that's over. So we're getting back into like, the overall story that was just a little break so do you remember anything about where we left off before we talked about the rap absolutely the heck not (laughs) do you remember anything about because this is kind of starting the 60s portion oh mama welcome to the 60s yes do you remember anything about the 50s oh mama go 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 do you remember any styles of music that were happening in the 50s that we talked about do up yeah there's a big one that's related to this episode that I'm hoping you remember. I'm not going to come up with this out of my butt. It's rock and roll. Okay. 
<laughs> talked about the birth of rock and roll. I and forgot that we already talked about that. Kind of that golden age with Chuck Berry and ah. Little Richard. <laughs> Her popsicle broke. She's not mad at Chuck Berry. Why? <laughs> we talked about Elvis. We talked about kind of like where rock and roll came from and a little bit about the golden era. But where we left off, it was kind of fading. No one cared about rock and roll all that much anymore. And people kind of moved on. Why did they move on? It just kind of got a little bit tired and old and played out. People were looking for the next new thing. So like they, pop? Yeah. They started listening to like soul music and we even talked about bluegrass a little bit. We talked about bluegrass after rock and roll? Yeah. It was the last thing oh. we talked about in the 50s portion. But today... We're talking about a movement that swept across America and it changed the American music scene entirely and it's called the British Invasion. Do you know like anything about the British Invasion? Beatles. Anything else? That's not even anything about it. That's just stating a band name. Hot Boys. That's why everyone cared, right? I mean, I guess. I don't think they were that hot, but... Oh, they weren't. (laughs) But... But People thought they were. Yeah. It's more about the rebellion. It's the image. Yeah. But, okay. I'm sorry. I'll take it back. Bad boys. There you go. The Beatles are not. This is not <laughs> enough. <laughs> we talk about the Beatles. They were bad boys until they cleaned up their image. We'll talk about that in not next episode, but the one after that. We have our Beatles special. That sounds like a Nat Geo like bug. Yes. That's what it is. Thing. I just record you watching a documentary about bugs. I That's our Beatles special. <laughs> As the name would imply, the British Invasion refers to a group of young British rock and roll groups that were heavily inspired by blues and early rock musicians from America. They took that sound, developed on it, and exploded in America. Because they were... Very talented musicians. British. Probably What's hotter than an accent. Again, you should do an accent. <laughs> I'm not trying to be hot for anyone. Why? Why aren't you trying to be hot for me? Bands like The Animals, The Who, The Rolling Stones, and The Beatles. You don't care about our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> we're just some of the bands that were very popular during this British invasion. This music would inspire so much and influence a ton of music that came after it. Most Americans listening to the British Invasion music thought it was something completely new from across the ocean, but they didn't realize that the British musicians considered it distinctly American because most of their influences were American blues and folk singers. People like Muddy Waters, Lead Belly, and Woody Guthrie gave rise to a new wave of music in England that morphed into the British Invasion. I always thought that was funny. Like we each thought the other invented the kind of music that was coming out. I think to properly understand how the American rock fad gained such a hold in England, you have to kind of understand what the society was like at that time. What was the society like? (laughs) World War II devastated really all of Europe, and England felt it really hard. Most of the kids in these bands were born during the war and grew up during the rebuilding efforts. So they weren't like living lives of luxury in the shadow of authoritarian figures still loomed pretty large, especially for their parents who had kind of like seen the worst of humanity. A lot of their parents had 
lived through both of the world wars, so they had just kind of seen the world in chaos for most of their lives. Do you think we're going to have a music explosion? I hope so, but I don't know. It isn't hard to imagine that their parents, who lived through the war rationing and air raids, were a little shell-shocked, nervous, and might have been a little bit more strict, like less, less willing to accept rebelliousness in their kids. So this image of the American rocker that came from overseas must have been so interesting to these kids. These rebellious, carefree, wild rockers had to appeal to these younger kids, and had an appeal to these younger kids in such a gripping way. Plus, the music was pretty good, too, so that helped. Through the end of the 50s, there were attempts in England to replicate the sound they heard coming from America, but nothing really caught on. There was no chart success, especially in the States. But then, in 1955, a relatively obscure genre of music called skiffle gained popularity. What? <laughs> it's called skiffle. What? When Decca spell Records... Kiffle. What? Sk- spell it. Skiffle? S. Kiffle. S-K-I-F-F-L-E. Did you just say I know how to spell kiffle? You you said kiffle, so I thought you were like relating it to a word you knew. Man, you really don't understand (laughs) medical terminology, do you? Why would I? (laughs) You're just like, I don't know. That's a word. (laughs) (laughs) It might. I don't know. That really brings me so much joy. I also thought it might have been like a name you knew. Kiffle? Yeah, that could be a last name. It, it is very similar. You know what? Yeah. Okay. Hold, skiffle? Yes, skiffle. <laughs> <laughs> it gained popularity when Decca Records released singles by, gay, by a guy named Lonnie Donegan, who was Britain's most successful artist before the Beatles. Skiffle was based largely in American folk music and used acoustic guitars and banjos. Essentially, they were basically like jug bands. It was people would build bands with just household instruments like instead of a drum they would have like a tub that they would bang on they would play i don't they just kind of like play whatever they would put strings over a broomstick it was very like homey and this seems very hillbilly and i'm having a hard time picturing it with an accent it's like british hillbilly basically donegan released his version of a lead belly song called rock island line that instantly shot to number one and inspired a skiffle craze that swept across England. Here is Rock Island Line. It's a lot of talking. I'm very excited. Now this is the story about the Rock Island Line. He's the king of skiffle. Now the Rock Island Line is a railroad line and it runs down into New Orleans. Told you it's a lot of talking. Just outside of New Orleans is a, a big toll gate. All the trains that go through the toll gate, why, they got to pay the man some money. Unless, of course, they got certain things on board, then they okay, and they don't ever have to pay the man nothing. I don't you know right what's now, happening. You see trains coming on down the line. And Talking about a train. When you get up near to the, the toll gate, the, uh, the depot agent shout down to the driver. He want to know what he got on board. So he say, uh, what you got on board there, boy? And the driver, he... Sing right on back down to deep voice like and tell him what he got on board. Storytelling. Yeah, the way you sing. It's just a story with the guitar that's going. Doo, doo, I got cows. I got horses. I got pigs. I got all the livestock. Now you're singing Old MacDonald. Livestock and a man say, well, he say, 
You all right then, boy. You don't have to pay me nothing. Just get him on through. So the train goes through the toll gate, and as it like goes through, rambling of like an got old up man. a little bit of steam. It sounds like that one. Who was it we talked uh, about? A little bit of speed. Who had his like side act where he just basically did this? Like Hank Williams, maybe? Yeah, when he sees me on the other side of the toll gate, the, I don't know why you. The driver shout back down the line to the man. He hated it. He needed this. Of course, you don't get what he say now, but I'm going down the rock out of line. Well, that's Lonnie. She said, but I fooled you. I fooled you. I got pig iron. It was a very popular song. Why? One of the first like British number ones. Were people in just making fun of it? No, they really liked it. It was new. It was we different. We have bad taste. <laughs> I mean, it was number one in England too. It is hard to overstate God. Lonnie Donegan's influence. He inspired almost every single major band in the British Invasion. I genuinely have no clue how rock and roll is supposed to come <laughs> from this. He helped bring this type of music to Great Britain. This skiffle boom started different English groups combining aspects of American music with their own traditions and different types of sounds started to flourish across the country. By the early 60s, the most notable of these different sounds was coming from Liverpool. Do you know any bands from Liverpool? (laughs) It was around this time that a young John Lennon started a skiffle band called the Quarrymen with Paul McCartney and George Harrison. The sound that started to come from Liverpool was nicknamed Mersey Beat after the River Mersey near the city. Obviously, the Beatles are the best known of the Mersey Beat bands, but there was also Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Searchers. Those were two other big Liverpool-based bands. This music was born out of the declining skiffle craze and relied heavily on a strong backbeat, hence why it was called beat music, with a 4-4 rhythm. So it's very similar to American rock and blues music that also had that heavy backbeat with a 4-4 rhythm. Liverpool was in a prime position for a new music scene to emerge. It was an industrial town that was on decline. The town that had a lot of local pride was suffering. There were also a lot of Irish immigrants and beat music was heavy, heavily Irish influenced. Also, it was a port city meaning they had easier access to the music and instruments that was coming across from America. I think Paul McCartney has said that they had access to records that other kids in England couldn't find simply by being near the docks. Because, like, sailors would come back from America and they would, like, have a different style and a different type of music that they were listening to. So these sailors, when they were docked in Liverpool for a little bit, that kind of style spread to the kids... There's a name for it that I can't remember. They were called something. Those sailors were. I don't remember what they were called. Are you trying to think of a name for it? Yeah. (laughs) But I'm not smart. Fankies. Like fake Yankees. (laughs) That's my name for it. Okay. It is estimated that in the early 1960s, there were over 350 different beat bands in Liverpool alone, all playing dance halls and different clubs. That's a lot of bands in one city. And they're all playing the music you hate. I guess that is... That's Nashville. There's a lot of country bands all playing the music you hate. Yeah, basically. (laughs) A similar type of sound also developed in wet... Never mind. Merseybeat also developed in West Germany, where a lot of the British bands would go to play for long periods of time. 
but we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we cover the Beatles. For now, I'll just let you listen to the Quarrymen, which is John Lennon's old band, playing their rendition of a Buddy Holly song. I'm excited. This is the first ever talk about it when we talk about oh that was the quarryman by the way that'll be the day i have to say that because it helps me with editing to know when to fade out the music i don't know if we talk about it in the beatles one like i don't know because after i wrote the beatles episode i read a book about the beatles so i learned just how much they were influenced by buddy holly like he apparently like was their biggest inspiration besides maybe elvis so Along with Merseybeat coming from Liverpool, other more industrial cities were developing their own sounds. In Manchester, bands like the Hollies and Herman's Hermits were emerging. Herman's Hermits. Yeah. <laughs> In Newcastle, the animals were creating their sound. London had a ton of bands coming up, as you would expect, like the Who, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, and the Yardbirds. British teenagers really had a knack for this whole rock and roll thing that they picked up from American blues and early rock pioneers. The Beatles had their first gig in England, or their first hit in England, when they released Please Please Me. That's aggressively <laughs> sexual. Their style, both musically and in their appearance, really excited fans in their performance on a television show called Thank Your Lucky Stars during a particularly bad snowstorm which meant that many people were home watching it, endeared them to the public. The song also released in America and didn't really see a whole lot of success there. Here is them performing Please Please Me much later in their career. I could not find them on Thank You Lucky Stars. the Beatles. I like it. There's a story Ringo tells about like this period of their career when they're so popular that he's like, I couldn't hear anything. I had no idea where we're at in the song. I just watched John's foot and how he was tapping. <laughs> I just used that to keep rhythm. Oh my God. And like, by the way, John was moving. I'd be like, oh, he does that little wiggle when we're at this part of the song. So he would know. Oh my that. God. So that's how he would like keep time. And that's know honestly incredibly impressive. Yeah. They couldn't hear, he couldn't hear anything because the bands were just so loud. Need a Or nurse. the fans were so loud. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about that a little later too because like that's one of the reasons they stopped touring because they just thought they were declining as musicians because they couldn't even hear themselves when they were playing. So they had no idea how they were doing. So they, that's why they stopped touring. Oh my gosh. 
Meanwhile, when were in ears developed? <laughs> much later. I don't even know if they had like on stage monitors at this point. I think it was because I don't like. I think they just turned their speakers up loud, like their amps up loud. God. <laughs> Meanwhile, in America, the rock and roll sound wasn't really around much anymore. Elvis was focused on movies. Jerry Lee Lewis had a scandal where he married his 14-year-old cousin. So he was out of the public eye. (laughs) (laughs) Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper had died in a plane crash. Big Bopper. Big Bopper. (laughs) He was a radio DJ turned musician who had like one hit and then died. Big Bopper. Little Richard was busy doing gospel music. So the golden era about that. The golden era of rock and roll was pretty much over in America. Most of the younger people were listening to folk music. This period was actually called the folk revival and it swept across college campuses. People like the Kingston Trio and Peter Paul and Mary really took over the music scene in the early 60s. So we didn't really get a lot of this British music. For one thing, it wasn't coming over. Like we weren't hearing a lot of these bands. But Are also you telling me that all of the children didn't have the means to get their music across a huge ocean? <laughs> yeah, basically. What? <laughs> but also the songs that did come over, like Please Please Me, didn't quite resonate with us. We were too into our artsy folk at the time. Our Taylor Swift folklore type stuff. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> But in October 1963, the first articles about Beatlemania in England started appearing in the U.S. The Beatles performed in front of Queen Elizabeth, which naturally sparked a lot of media attention. That all died down as just a funny story from England until Walter Cronkite, looking for a more lighthearted, fun story, reran a story about Beatlemania. This led to a young woman named Marcia Albert to write to her local radio station in Washington, D.C. and ask why they didn't have music like that in America, which is very ironic. Yep. <laughs> so that radio station in D.C. started playing the Beatles' newest single, I Want to Hold Your Hand. That led to a massive influx of people calling radio stations and demanding records from stores that the stores didn't even have. And so the Beatles started their takeover of America because of one girl calling a radio station. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> we have power. <laughs> I can't really lump myself in that anymore. You could. You could call your radio station. I, I have. Oh. Or tag them on TikTok. I don't know. It just seems the way kids do it these days. I, I'm not a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to do that. On February 7th, 1964, the Beatles made their first trip to the States. Although they only stayed two weeks, that was enough to ignite the national craze over them. They did dozens of interviews, and people loved their accents. They played the Ed Sullivan Show three times in those two weeks. Oh my god. And played three concerts. I Want to Hold Your Hand, shot to number one, and every kid who saw them perform on TV desperately wanted them to come back to America. Aww. And think it also helped, like, their personalities helped a lot, too, because they were very witty and sarcastic and that kind of dry British sense of humor towards journalists. So a lot of kids were like, these guys are the best. (laughs) And they had long hair, which wasn't normal back then. It is estimated that on their first performance on the Ed Sullivan Show, over 45% of American televisions were tuned in to watch, which is an absurd amount. 
By April 4th, they held the top five spots on the charts. No one has ever done that again. No one has ever held the top four since then. Wow. So all five <laughs> were Beatles songs. Here is that one Ed Sullivan performance. We're talking a lot about the Beatles, and we have a whole episode on them, but there's a lot to cover with them. So, And they're like, they kicked off the British Beatles. I love it. In 1964, the Beatles released a film called A Hard Day's Night that really cemented that England was the center of rock culture. Are you going to say something? What was the film about? I don't know that that matters. (laughs) It's just kind of. What do you mean? I don't know what it was. It was just them like goofing off, and it was just like a documentary thing? Sort of, but it was just kind of like there was a loose plot, but it was more about just getting their music out there and capitalizing on their fame, basically. Like the I don't know, the rock movies of this time were weird. I don't know. I don't know how to explain them. Like there was a plot. They had to go do something, but no one really cared about it. Okay. So it's like we have to go play at this stadium, but oh no, our car broke down. <laughs> Whoa, ACDC, I'm going to get in your limo. And then they like do coke or something. <laughs> and don't then think ACDC was a band at this point. And okay. then and then they get to the 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 stadium. Is that like the type of shenanigans, shenanigans that we're talking about? Uh, yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, do you want to? Here's the here's a plot summary from Wikipedia. Yes, please. The Beatles evade a horde of fans while boarding a train for London. En route, they meet Paul's troublemaking grandfather for the first time. Okay. He becomes so much of a nuisance that Paul has him locked up in the guard's van, but he and the others soon join him inside. They play cards and entertain some schoolgirls before arriving at the London station, where they've quickly driven to a hotel and begin to feel cooped up. Uh, The next day, they arrive at a TV studio for performance. After the initial rehearsal, the producer thinks they're out to sabotage his career, (laughs) thanks to something the grandfather said. There's a press conference where the Beatles are bored by the mundane questioning. They leave through a fire escape and cavort in a field until forced off by the owner. Back in the studios, they are separated (laughs) when a woman named Millie recognizes John but cannot recall who he is. George is lured into a trendmonger's office to audition for an ad with a popular female model. The boys all return to rehearse a second song and after a quick trip to make up, smoothly go through a third and earn a break. Uh, Ringo's forced to chaperone Paul's grandfather and takes him to the canteen for tea while he reads a book. The grandfather manipulates Ringo into going outside to experience life rather than reading books, passing a surprise to John and Paul on the way out. 
He tries to have a quiet drink in a pub, takes pictures, walks alongside the river, and rides a bicycle along a railway station platform. While the other three search in vain for Ringo, he is arrested on suspicion and taken to a police station, where Paul's grandfather joins him shortly after attempting to sell Beatles photos with forged signatures. The grandfather makes a break for it, runs back to the studio, and tells the others about Ringo. Their manager sends John, Paul, and George to retrieve him. While doing so, the boys wind up in a Keystone Cop-style foot chase before arriving back at the studio with Ringo with only minutes to spare before airtime. The televised concert goes on as planned, after which the Beatles are whisked away to another performance via helicopter. That's the plot. Why does this sound like <laughs> an edgier Disney Channel original movie? <laughs> yeah, it's just the Jonas Brothers TV show. Yes! <laughs> it was very popular, and people loved it. I want to watch it! <laughs> sure you can. Oh my gosh, I bet it's horrible in all of the same ways that Hannah Montana was! <laughs> After that, the American charts were flooded with songs from England. The Beatles paved the way and were the most popular, but really the American charts belonged to English beat bands and the Beach Boys, but mostly British beat bands. These British acts had taken American blues and rock music, transformed it a little, and sent it back to an audience that generally had no idea where it came from. At this point, most American teens didn't listen to blues. There were still race records and not for them. They were still race records and not for them. So white American teens didn't listen to it. Some musicians had achieved crossover success, but by and large, American teens weren't listening to Muddy Waters, Lead Belly, Howlin' Wolf, and all those other blues legends. That's a bummer. Yeah. The British kids were loving it, though. But although it caused them to develop this kind of music that took the world by storm, it also led to some interesting clashes in their own minds. The British bands, not the fans. They constantly battled between this clean-cut pop image that American media expected and the more edgy, rebellious attitude that they learned to cherish from American rock and blues. A lot of them didn't feel authentic and felt forced into these suits and clean haircuts to protect an image that they didn't even want in the first place. The singer of a band called The Animals has said that they weren't managed, they were mismanaged, and clashed with the image record labels and radio stations expected of them. He said, quote, They dressed us up in the most strange costumes. They were even going to bring a choreographer to show us how to move on stage. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was something that was so far away from our nature, and we were just pushed around and told, When you arrive in America, don't mention the Vietnam War. You can't talk about the war. <laughs> we felt like we were being gagged. End quote. Oh, my God. <laughs> Here is The Animals' most famous song, which is a cover of an old blues and folk standard. It's called The House of the Rising Sun. First oh, is album. that like why I know that's all his animals? Yeah. We also listened to, like, I think Lead Belly maybe playing it back when we talked about the blues. A house in New Orleans. Oh my gosh. They pull the rising sun. That sound is not coming out of that man. He looks like a 13-year-old bully. You just need to put some freckles on him. These suits are just kind of ridiculous on them. But since the Beatles got popular and they wore suits, everyone was like, you have to wear a suit to make it in They look like they Also, Buddy Holly and his crickets wore suits. 
I don't understand what's happening. There is a major disconnect. Yeah. I'm I'm extremely intrigued. Mm-hmm. That is really weird. Also, that does he looks like a boy. Yeah, he's he, probably pretty young. How probably. is the the sound and the face do not match with me? <laughs> and then you throw in like the Bieber hair and the suit, <laughs> and I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> Eric Clapton left the Yardbirds after they released a pop hit because he wanted to be more of a blues purist. The Rolling Stones initially heavily resisted the pop attitude of the Beatles until John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote, I want to be your man for them and showed them how easy it was to make a pop hit. <laughs> so they were like, all right, we can do this <laughs> and started That's doing funny. it. Bands like the Nick, the Kinks in The Who were open to more of the pop style, but were both looking for more of an edgy, subversive sound. So, like, the Kinks and the Who were always kind of, like, in this unofficial competition with each other to just see who could, like, find that balance between being an edgy rock band and also, like, pop-friendly. The Kinks won that race with their song called You Really Got Me, which was one of the hardest rock songs heard at that time. The singer said he wrote the song as a tribute to all of those blues guys he loved, including Big Bill Brunzi and Lead Belly. It was the band's first song to hit number one on the British charts and reach number seven in America. Do you want to hear You Really Got I Me? I want to hear it. Here's You Really Got Me, the hardest song of the time. This is a number yeah, You really got me now. You got me so I can't sleep at night. Yeah. Like, I feel like I should be, like, running like, for school and grabbing stuff and, like, <laughs> trying to eat cereal while running into my car. Like, throwing on my Like, at the end of it, you, like, aren't looking, and you, like, run, like, head first into the principal, and the principal's, like, scowling at you, and you're like, hmm. So it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Maybe. (laughs) Then, like, the the music ends, and it's, like, all quiet as you, like, walk into the classroom, (laughs) and then, like, your crush is right there, like, staring at you, and you're like, oh, my God, and it's really quiet and awkward as soon as this stops playing, and it, like, stops abruptly. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Okay. It works. (laughs) After the success of that song, the Kings kind of really didn't do much, and the Who easily surpassed them in terms of like popularity and legacy, honestly. In May of 1965, the top ten featured almost exclusively English bands. The only holdout was a number two with Jerry Lewis and, or Gary Lewis and the Playboys. That year, half of the 26 chart-topping songs belonged to British bands. So British bands were, have just taken over America at this point. But a lot of the British beat bands were less successful at merging the blues and pop sounds. Since the BBC had a stranglehold on most media, these bands developed essentially as live club bands and didn't really even consider pop success. They were happy in their own little like underground lane. Sounds fun. 
Yeah. Some bands, like Manfred Man, try to live the best of both worlds. Manfred Man? Well, Manfred is one Manfred Man. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) What's a Manfred? I I don't know, honestly. (laughs) Where's a Manfred? (laughs) Who's a Manfred? Who's a man? They try to live the best of both worlds. They'd release a pop fluff song to finance recording more traditional blues style stuff. See, that's how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, all right, it's kind of like that one for you, three for me kind of mm-hmm. attitude. Like, I'm going to release one thing that you guys are going to love, and then that's going to pay for the three that I want to do. One of their songs, Dua Diddy, reached number one in England and America in the summer of 1964. Let me guess, that one was one Here's of the Duwa one Diddy. for you songs. Yes, one of their <laughs> pop fluff ones. There she was, just walking uh, down the street singing. That's probably it, I don't know. It looks like it is. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> oh my god. She looked good, she looked fine, and I nearly lost my mind. Before I knew it, she was walking next to me singing. They're just standing on trash. Holding my hand, just as natural as can be singing. We walk on to my door. We walk on to my door. Then we kissed a little more. Oh, I knew we was falling in love. Yeah, that's kind of another example of these bands trying to blend what's going to be a hit and what they actually want to do. By the mid-60s, teen culture was completely focused on England. Somehow, the Beatles had created this image of England as the musical capital of the world. But it also launched a music explosion in America. Guitar sales skyrocketed. Young men started to grow out their hair. The British flag became a fashion statement. (laughs) It kind of revitalized that rock and roll youth culture of the mid to late 50s, and with that... Americans started to relearn about those rock legends who inspired all of the British bands and then slipped into obscurity. People like Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and Bo Diddley, who like kind of created a lot of that rock beat that we know, but he's kind of forgotten about. The British invasion also happened partly because Americans joined it late. By the time we started to hear this music, most of the bands had a hefty backlog. The Beatles already had two full albums before they made it in America, so there was a lot of material to get through and a lot for those British labels to ship over here and sell to us. Around 1966 or 1967, the British invasion started to simmer as more and more American artists, inspired by the English acts, started to produce great music that influenced the English counterparts. Notably, The Birds, Bob Dylan, and The Beach Boys created work that helped inspire the Beatles' album Rubber Soul in 1965. So, American bands started to fight back. I'm tracking. <laughs> okay. By the end of the decade, the British invasion had changed into a more universal rock movement instead of just British bands. But the British beat bands introduced American teens to their own music and inspired an entire generation of rockers after them. Most people point to the Beatles' concert in San Francisco in 1967 as the official end of the British invasion, because after that, the Beatles stopped playing live and became only a studio band. 
The British invasion came in like a fresh wave that crashed through the predictable music scene in America. The next wave of British bands that came through, like Cream, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, were great bands, but they mixed with equally great American bands. They didn't dominate the scene like the mid-60s British bands did. So, like, after this, it's not like English bands were just done making it in America. There were still a lot that were very influential, but there was also equally as many American bands. That's British Invasion. What's I your... feel invaded. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> Sounds terrible. <laughs> Next week, we talk about the Rolling Stones, who, after the Beatles, were the most popular British Invasion band. And then we talk about the Beatles. We have a Beatles special. And then we're done with all that England nonsense, and we're back to American music. Yeehaw. Good, pure American music. No. <laughs> we're going to talk about, like, Motown. We're talk about Diana Ross. Okay, down with that. And then we have a bonus episode on Phil Spector, just because I have to talk about him. He's... Regina Spector's dad? No. <laughs> it's, it's a weird one, so buckle up for that. All right. Anything you want to add about the British invasions? Kind of a shorter episode. It was one of my favorite periods in American music, did or in music in general. I like this kind of music. Did they popularize wearing glasses? No, that was Buddy Holly. Okay. Because before Buddy Holly, there was quite a few artists who needed glasses, like John Lennon who said that glasses were just uncool and they would never wear them on stage, so they just couldn't see anything. And then they saw Buddy Holly wearing glasses, and they were like, oh, well, he can do it, and he looks cool. So then they started wearing them, too. Mm. Like, John Lennon directly cited Buddy Holly as the reason he would wear glasses on stage. Cool. I don't know the whole, like, wearing glasses even though you don't need it. (laughs) I don't know where that came from, but... I just saw several pairs of glasses, and I was like, I wonder. Yeah. They're probably not all from Buddy Holly, but he was one of the major people who made it cool. All right. Well, hopefully we'll have an episode next week. If not, join us at the next episode time when we're going to talk about the Rolling Stones. Stop. We got to be more consistent, and then I'll be less awkward. (laughs) You're not going to be less awkward. That's true. Okay. Bye.